Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Good morning again. Part of what makes up any society is a shared sense of that which is acceptable. Let me say that again. That's not a normal sentence, I don't think, but it's true. Part of what makes up any society, and my background is political philosophy, so <laughs> I get to delve in that a little bit today. Part of what makes up any society is a shared sense of what is acceptable. Think, think about that. Think about that for a minute. This includes things like speed limits and financial and ethical systems and healthcare policies and religious freedoms. In some societies, that common sense is really broad. Lots of things fall under it, and in some societies, it's very narrow. Sometimes social norms are imposed through laws and policing, and sometimes simply through social pressure. Regardless of their scope or enforcement mechanism, however, for a society to function, there must be agreed upon limits to what the people that make it up can and cannot do. You with me? There's your political philosophy lesson for the day. Well, since Jesus walked the earth, every society that has included his followers has had to come to grips with how to handle Christians. There's a lot more that could be said about that, but there's at least this. Early on, Christians were despised and fed to lions for sport. That's how they handled it. At other times and places, Christianity was the dominant religion and wielded its influence in every conceivable way. That's another way it's been handled, and throughout history, everything in between. Because grace, this is key, God is creator, king, judge, all-loving, good, wise, and powerful. And because Christianity is good, beautiful, and true, this is important, when Jesus is faithfully followed, societies flourish. You should write that down. You should tell that to somebody today. I'm going to say that again. Because God is creator, king, judge, all loving, all good, all wise, all powerful, and because Christianity is good, beautiful, and true, when Jesus is faithfully followed, societies flourish. Well, as you know, because Jesus hasn't always been faithfully followed by his followers, and because non-Christians always have their own reasons to reject Christian doctrine and practice, even where there is a Christian presence in society, flourishing has not always been the case. All right, so embedded in all of that, that's sort of a, some foundational truths. Embedded within all of that, within all of this, is a question that was front and center in our passage, even as it is becoming increasingly front and center in our lives today. How Christian is someone able to be 
before he finds himself outside of society's shared sense of what is acceptable? I really, really want you to ask that question. And I really, really want you to try to answer that. And I'm going to give you another one, too. But here, here it is again. How Christian is someone able to be before he finds himself outside of society's shared sense of what is acceptable? And, and sort of the other angle on that question is, how much of God's system must a society reject before genuine Christians are compelled to act in defiance? Those are two questions that we need to answer. Need to ask and we need to answer. Well, our passage for this morning certainly doesn't answer every question, or really many of them at all, and in some ways none of them uh, that we might have on this subject, but it definitely does this. It gives us a vivid picture of one line crossed and one genuinely Christian response to it. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had turned turned one of the most holy and joyful feasts that God had given his people into several days of godless exploitation. Upon seeing this, incensed, enraged, and as the text tells us, consumed with zeal, Jesus temporarily put an end to it, even as he moved closer to permanently putting an end to it forever. The big idea of this passage, you ready? The big idea of this passage is that Jesus came to put an end to the world's mockery of God and atone for the sins of those who participated in it. And the big takeaways for us are that one living in a thoroughly Christian way means that we will find the limits of what a non-Christian society will tolerate. Jesus promised that. And secondly, at some point, societies become so corrupt and hostile to God that Christians will need to resist. So let's pray that God would help us to learn from the consuming zeal of Jesus the goodness and rightness and be strengthened for it. That is the following of Jesus, wherever he leads and whatever it costs. God, thank you that in this passage is another portrayal of Jesus as the Christ. Thank you that John's overall aim is to convince us of that and to urge us to believe in that, to receive that in faith that we might have life. And thank you that within that overall banner, there are many, many lessons for us to learn. Thank you that in the life of Jesus and throughout the Gospel of John, we will see Jesus acting in a way that society won't tolerate and society behaving in a way that Jesus won't tolerate. Help us to see this category or have this category maybe created for us this morning and have it grow in each of us with increasing wisdom and unity as we move through the Gospel and through this this world. We love you and we thank you. And above all, though, we thank you that in Three days, the temple that was destroyed was raised up again. Thank you that that's our hope. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. The scene opens. It's another scene, and it opens by indicating that the Passover celebration is a few days away. There are two key things. If we're going to make sense of what Jesus said and and did, and if we're going to have any hope of knowing what that means for us down the road or today, there are two key aspects of the Passover that we absolutely need to understand to get our heads around uh, to do that. Uh, One is what the Passover was or what it was meant to be. And secondly, what it had become by Jesus' day. Let me give you a little bit of both of those. I, I imagine 
many of you understand the origin of the Passover, but I also know that some of you don't. So let me give you a little crash course. You might remember Joseph, uh, Abraham's great-grandson. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was one of the 12 and Jacob's favorite. By God's design and his jealous brother's evil choices, so God planned this, we're told, in the end of Genesis, and his evil brothers planned this as well. Both were true at the same time. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ended up in Egypt. And while he was there, he went from a forgotten prisoner to the second most powerful man in all the land. In that latter capacity, the second most powerful man in all the land, God used him to rescue the world from a famine and cause the Israelites to move there and flourish there and grow there and prosper there. Well, it didn't take long, tragically, to where Joseph died and the Pharaoh that had promoted Joseph died. And the new ruler in Egypt saw the prosperity of this people, the Jews, as a threat rather than a blessing from God. As a result, he enslaved them. And as you probably know, the slavery lasted for 400 years. During that time, however, God never forgot his promise. He promised Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then his offspring, including Joseph, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And They would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and a land to dwell in. God never forgot that or failed to hear the prayers of his people. In his perfect timing, God determined to deliver Israel from this captivity. And to do so, he raised up another of Abraham's offspring, Moses, to have special favor again in Egypt. So there's a lot of parallels between Joseph and Moses. Again, in God's providence and due to the wicked intentions of the Egyptians. So God planned it and sinners planned it. Moses was raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. Eventually, he became God's spokesman, Moses, before Pharaoh, his adopted father. The message from God through Moses to Pharaoh was simple. So Moses was commanded to say, God has commanded you to let the Israelites, his people, my kinsmen, go, or you will experience the wrath of God. Pharaoh refused and was therefore subjected to a series of nine catastrophic plagues that wiped out large portions of Egypt's crops and animals and people. Still, with a hard heart, Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. That is, until the tenth and final plague, the killing of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Here's where we start to land the plane and get back into the text for this morning. In order that the Israelites would be spared of this plague, and in order to ensure that everyone would know that it was God who spared them, God gave instructions to Israel through Moses. Read these in Exodus 12. I'm going to read a few verses out of there. The Lord said to Moses, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. 
when the whole assembly of the congregation, there then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then, verse 7, uh, Exodus 12, verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. So kill the lamb in the evening, take its blood, put it on your doorposts. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. In this manner you shall eat it. In this manner, the manner that's to follow, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, ready to go. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood, the lamb that you killed and put on your doorpost shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I'll pass through Egypt to take the firstborn. But I will pass over you wherever I see the blood and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That was the... That was the origin of the Passover and the beginning of it. This first Passover meal took place in captivity in Egypt, and through it, God preserved and freed millions of Jews from centuries of slavery. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this was such a significant event and such a remarkable display of God's power and love and glory and faithfulness to his covenant promises that God essentially took this as a name for himself referring to himself over and over again as the God who brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the lands of the Egyptians. I am that God, the one who did those things. Well, beyond that, and more than just a one-time celebration, even from its very beginning, God commanded the Israelites to celebrate Passover that night, but also in perpetuity. The very next verse in Exodus 12, we read, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Every year from that point on, the Israelites were to celebrate God's miraculous deliverance of his people from slavery through blood. Well, what's more, we add just a little bit more to it before we get back to Jesus' day. According to Deuteronomy 16, once the temple was built, it wasn't built at this time, but once it was built eventually, the Jews came to understand that Jerusalem, which is where the temple was built, was the place chosen by God to celebrate the Passover. For that reason, every year, many Jews would descend upon Jerusalem from all over to celebrate the Passover as God commanded. By Jesus' time, that had been going on. By the time of our passage here in John chapter 2, that had been going on for centuries. All right, so that's where the Passover came from, and that's what the Passover was, and that's what the Passover celebration was meant to be. But the second thing we really need to get our heads around, which this text assumes, is the modern reality. By the time of our, by modern, I mean in Jesus' time. And yet, by the time of this passage, it had turned into something different altogether. The Passover still took place at God's appointed time. 
It still took place in God's appointed place, and it still took place under God's appointed banner, the memory of them being freed from Egypt. Sadly, however, it did not continue to take place according to the heart that God had intended it to have. It had departed from God's appointed heart. That is a heart of submission and gratitude and trust and humility and love. Keeping merely the form or the letter of God's charge with the approval of their own leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Passover celebration had deteriorated into a time of debauchery and exploitation. That's why Jesus did what he did in our passage for this morning. Before we get to that again, I want to say three things that are in the text that help us to understand, again, the modern reality that Jesus was acting in. Three things. The first one is Roman oppression. Again, the Passover was a ce- the Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance of the Jews from Egyptian control and oppression and slavery. Right? It, it was a celebration of their deliverance from oppression. The first thing to see is that ironically, during the time this passage was written, the Jews had once again fallen under the oppression of the thumb of a pagan kingdom, this time Rome. But rather than receive this, again, it's just so ironic that what they're claiming to be gathering in the city to be celebrating was we had rebelled against God and been taken into captivity. And then he freed us miraculously to help us to know that he alone is God and he alone keeps covenant promises forever. We're claiming to be celebrating this. Well, not learning the lesson. We're, we're under oppression again, and rather than be a, a, a contrite and humble and repentant people, rather than receive this in humility and repentance, rather than receive again the, the freedom from bondage that God, they were claiming to celebrate, that God had given them from Egypt and restore to them true blessing. Get this, get this. The Jews and Jewish leaders, instead of seeking real freedom and real blessing from God through repentance, the Jews and the Jewish leaders sought blessing through alternative means, exploitation, the exploitation of one another. So that's the first thing to see is celebrating their freedom from pagan oppression. They were under pagan oppression. And instead of remembering that it is repentance that leads to God's Forgiveness and freedom and blessing. We're going to, within this corrupted system, within our sins, try to find fake blessing in fake ways. All right, the next two things to see under the modern day example are two ways in which they did that. Acceptable sacrifices and acceptable currency. The second and third key keys to the modern sense of things pertain to two particular forms of exploitation and counterfeit blessing. Because many Jews would have had to travel great distances from their homeland to get to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and celebrate Passover, it was very inconvenient to bring their own animals with them. To, to, to offer his sacrifices. Therefore, local residents, with the blessing of the Jewish leaders who would get a cut of all of this, would set up shops 
to sell acceptable sacrifices. Remember, it had to be a male that was a year old and without blemish. And so they'd have a bunch of these lined up and so that people traveling great distances, distances, distances didn't have to bring their own. That Conveniently, they'd have them right there for them. Well, the problem is that they'd sell the animals at exorbitant and exploitive prices. They were way too high. And they would do so within the temple courts that were supposed to be reserved for godliness, praise, and worship, and contemplation. It seems that the practice of selling animals to traveling Jews began as a, as a genuine service, but it had, to devolve, it had devolved by this time to a money-making racket. Think of food at the ballpark or State Park firewood on steroids. And here's the other one. In a similar way, because only Jewish currency was acceptable to pay the temple taxes, which was required. Read about that in Exodus 30. Money changers were on hand to allow travelers to exchange currencies from wherever they had come for this. Again, this was something originally good. It was a service offered, but it gradually become corrupted by corrupted people. It was good that the Jewish currency was regulated. It was a way to avoid exploitation. It, it was required to have a certain percentage, a, a high percentage of silver, so that people weren't cheating one another. It was a good thing. It was a gift from God so that they could avoid exploita- exploitation. But instead, once again, they used it to exploit. Local money changers could have provided genuine service to their traveling brothers and sisters who didn't have Jewish currency where they lived. But but like their animal-selling counterparts, the money men of Jesus' day charged exorbitant prices. Think currency at airport exchange booths on steroids. So all of these things, this is all in the way of background. Help us to explain why Jesus was in Jerusalem to begin with, why he'd gone there to celebrate Passover, what it was meant to be, like what it was like. And I hope with all of this, you can see better why Jesus responded in the way that he did. And so with all of that, let's consider again how Jesus did respond. Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. You know why? And the money changers sitting there. You know why? And making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. As I mentioned in the introduction, to live a thoroughly Christian life, all that Jesus, obeying all that Jesus had commanded, living a thoroughly Christian life, or living in a thoroughly Christian way in a non-thoroughly Christian society inevitably means that Christians will find the limits of their society's tolerance and will at times need to respond in defiant ways. We have an example of both of those things in these three verses. Jesus, far more concerned with his Father's honor and glory than he was about being seen as appropriate by those who had forsaken the very God they claimed to be celebrating, was consumed with zeal. He could not longer tolerate tolerate this exploitation, this mockery, this debauchery of God's name and God's people, by God's people in God's house. 
As a result, he violently, though temporarily, put an end to all of this. He drove out the animal salesmen and the money changers and made it clear why he was doing so in the process. As we'll see over and over and over, if you stick with us through John's gospel, you see over, you'll see over and over and over again that it was only later that the disciples really understood what they witnessed here. It wasn't until after his death and resurrection that his followers remembered Psalm 69.9, a psalm of David, and were able to properly interpret these events in light of it. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So again, I want to put a key question back in front of you, especially in this day and age. Here's the question. What implications does this have for us? Should we be doing more of this? And if so, where and to what extent? To be clear, while this passage certainly raises these questions, it does not really answer them. We'll, we'll get more answers as we move through John, but that's not what this passage is about. What it does do, once again, though, is to show us that this kind of thing is necessary. This kind of response is necessary at times. And it does show us one way that it might look to honor God in it. So, again, here's the question. What implication does this passage have for us? As we prayerfully consider it for us today, keep a few things in mind. You ready? In this case, it was Jesus not his disciples that did this. That needs to humble us. There's no indication that Jesus even invited or wanted his disciples to join him in it. There's no, there's no record of him saying, come on, guys, let's, let's do this. Let's get this. This is something, in this passage at least, that Jesus alone did, even though his followers were there. Second, Jesus would have been to many Passovers previously where this same thing was going on, and he didn't do anything, at least the Bible doesn't tell us that he did anything like that at any of them. And so there is a time as well as a place for this. Third, this would happen again. This was the first of two. We'll read about another one in the other Gospels, which means that this kind of thing was right for Jesus to do and might be right for us at times, but it is not the ultimate answer to whatever problem we face. Remember that. And lastly, the disciples didn't even understand what was happening here at this time. And that means we need to be a humble people. We need to be really careful when it comes to this kind of thing. Nevertheless, this passage helps us to see in no uncertain terms that there is a line Christians ought not to cross to participate in the things society is doing. And there is a line that Christians cannot silently tolerate. It takes tremendous wisdom to know where that line is and what to do when we find it. And likewise, even when we do find it, and even when we do find the godly response to it, it often takes tremendous courage to act, knowing that our actions will be labeled foolish and dangerous and illegal and even at times unchristian by Christians. Grace, we must be in constant prayer for God to help us do God's will when God's ways are forsaken. All right, here's the last part. What we find in verses 13 to 17 is an exceptionally dramatic example of sinners sinning and Jesus cleansing. But here, here it is. If you don't hear anything else, hear this, Grace Church. But the rest of this passage helps us to see that what is presented to us here as an event or in an event was really a picture of a larger problem. 
that plagued humanity and the true solution that God promised to provide. Does that make sense? So the rest of this passage, verses 18 through 22, tell us as real and as serious as that was and and that there is a Christian response to what Jesus encountered. That was a picture. That was merely a picture of the larger problem that plagues humanity. And it's merely Jesus' solution is merely a picture of the true solution God promised to provide. That's what we need to hear. In other words, we're not meant, get this, get this, get this, three times. That's important. I learned that from the Bible. Uh, In other words, we're not meant, get this, Grace, we're not meant to consider the Jewish leaders, the animal salesmen or the money changers and think, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I don't need Jesus to act like that towards me. Thank God Jesus came in and cleared up that, that ragamuffin group of problem people. I made that up just now. Instead, we're meant to think, that's my problem too. I, too, look for blessings in counterfeit places. I, too, seek God's gifts, to use God's gifts to exploit God's people. I, too, hypocritically use my mouth to praise God and worship and then talk trash to people that afternoon. I, too, hypocritically look at the beauty of God and his word and then use it to look lustfully on his creation. I, too, hypocritically use the same legs to run to God when I'm in need and then to sin when I'm selfish. And most importantly, I too need Jesus to discipline me and cleanse me of my sin. Therefore, before, get this, get this, before we ever consider acting like Jesus did in this passage, we need to first act like those Jesus drove out should have acted. In repentance, humility. Rather than any of that, though, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Prove that you have the right to say this. We're going to see over and over Jesus doing signs, and we're going to see over and over hard-hearted people completely missing them. The sign isn't the issue. The grace of God is. Their hearts were so hardened that the obvious rightness of Jesus' words and actions wasn't obvious to them. They demanded Jesus perform some kind of sign to prove that he had the authority to say and do the things that he did. It's hard, Grace, not to think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, which is what it was right here, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, in the wisdom of God, to any who had eyes to see and ears to hear grace, Jesus' words and actions in the temple would have been convicting and self-attestingly true and right, the power and wisdom of God. But Jesus was not dealing with those who had eyes to see or ears to hear. He was dealing with those who were stumbling, foolish. And so the key to this whole passage then is the simple fact that all of that is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus was consumed with zealous grief and even anger over the dishonor his father's people were causing his father. And yet, that's why he was there. If there had been no sin, he would not have needed to become one of us and dwell among us. It was precisely because we all act like this, as animal salesmen and money changers and hypocritical Jewish leaders, as sinners, 
It is precisely because we all act like this that Jesus stood before these people in this passage. He made that crystal clear in verses 19 to 21. Jesus answered them, I'll give you a sign. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. They had no idea what he was talking about. So they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But Grace Church, the gospel of God, is that he was talking about the temple of his body in a manner that even again, once again, for a second time in a few verses, his closest followers wouldn't fully understand until later. Jesus explained that he was about to perform a sign and effect a cleansing that went way beyond anything they could ask for. They wanted him to put on a dog and pony show to prove that, you know, maybe some neat sleight of hand or whatever to prove that he had the authority to do what he did. But he said, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. But what you don't need is a sign. You need the grace of God. With a the massive, remember the temple is right there. They're seeing it. They're standing just outside of it. Just picture saying, I'm going to tear down Mount Rushmore and recarve it in three days with Mount Rushmore in the background. He's standing right there when he says this, the massive, impressive temple right next to them. And again, just you got a picture of the animals bleeding, ble- bleating and cooing, right? That's what pigeons do. And, and, and jingling coins still happening and fading into the distance. With all that going on, Jesus declared that these same men would kill him, the true temple, the true dwelling place of God, the true Lamb of God and declared that he would raise from the dead three days later. And he declared that he would do so to atone for the kinds of sins and sinners that stood before him through blood to pass over them and to free them from slavery and sin. What his actions at the temple and turning over the money-changing tables and driving out the animal sellers, what his actions at the temple did temporarily and partially he would do permanently and perfectly on the cross. Again, we just saw that even his closest followers still didn't understand this. When therefore he was raised from the dead, and only after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. They remembered back and thought about all these things, and they believed the scripture. Remember, we, we keep seeing that. They believed, and then they believed a bit more, and then they believed more, and they believed more. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Grace, is that clear already from this text or from your own life? We are hard-headed people. We are too often slow to listen and understand and even slower to believe and act. We have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. We are sinful by nature and then by choice. We proudly confront Jesus for his reminders and rebuke. And yet, rather than give us what we deserve for all of that, he offers grace and mercy upon grace and mercy. We deserve, we deserve to be driven out and broken. But instead, Jesus welcomes us and heals us because he was driven out and broken on our behalf. That's amazing grace. Here's my conclusion. Thoroughly Christian. You simply cannot read the Bible and conclude that those who are thoroughly Christian will live comfortable, socially acceptable lives in most cases. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Those who tore down Jesus' temple would do everything in their power to tear down that of his followers as well. 
The choice in front of all who take on the name of Christ, therefore. Here's your choice. When you present the gospel to people, give them this choice. Don't tell them they can have their best life now. Tell them this is your choice. The choice in front of all who take on the name of Christ is to be only as Christian as society tolerates or to live thoroughly Christian lives and therein invite society's intolerance to fall on you, perhaps in crushing, truly crushing ways. I'm not talking about seeking out persecution or being unnecessarily annoying and crying foul. I'm also not saying that being thoroughly Christian means dying on every single hill of social rebellion. Our aim, Paul wrote, and as I prayed earlier, is to live quiet and godly lives, not to be controversial for its own sake. But I am trying to state as clearly as possible something Jesus' actions in this passage help us to see. Acting in a thoroughly Christian manner in a fallen world means two things. First, once again, it means that we will find the limits of what a non-Christian society will tolerate. And when we do, there will be consequences for us. And second, it means that at some point, societies become so corrupt and hostile to God that Christians have to resist. It takes a clear understanding of the Bible. It takes genuine humility. It takes the church in prayer. It takes courage and wisdom and the Holy Spirit of God to know where these lines are and what to do when they're crossed. But more than all of that, Jesus' actions in this passage help us to see that our greatest problem is not any of that. It's our own sin, not the sins of others. And our greatest hope is not anything we'll ever do, not any stand we'll ever take or any line that will refuse to cross at cost, but in what Jesus did for us in his suffering and death and resurrection.